The rest of you can turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. This week, my, my kids uh, got a cat. I, I should say, my, one of my daughters got a cat, and everyone else gets to reap the, both the benefits and the, the challenges of that. Um, if, you, if you don't know, there's uh, a, a guy in our church, Roger. He, has, uh, he lives on a, on a farm homestead, so to speak. And so he ha- periodically he has cats, and he gives away kittens for free. So just, uh, you know, if you're looking for a cat, I'm sure he'd be glad to hook you up with one. Um, uh, and uh, he, uh, you know, it's good for kids to, to learn how to take care of animals, right? Overall, I think it's a good, good thing. Um, as parents, it's somewhat of a pain at times because it just adds one more thing that you have to think about in your home. Uh, but uh, it's good for, for them. They, they get a chance to, um, to learn how to care for different animals. And, and uh, in, in the process, right, so this is a kitten. It's not just uh, a cat that can take care of itself. It's a kitten, which means uh, that, and it's, you know, it's like eight weeks old. So it, it it's not, it's not able to protect itself. And that's, that makes it even more of a challenge to an extent because like this morning we're like trying to figure out before we left for church, like, okay, where is the kitten? You know what I mean? And frankly, we couldn't find the kitten. So we had to lock up uh, the dog in, in a place where we knew the kitten was not. And so that, that the, in order that nothing, you know, drastic happens to the kitten while we're gone, right? You get how this might go. Uh, and uh, because it, it, you want your kids to learn, hey, it, to protect an animal means that you, you, know, you have to think about its needs and how to, how to take care of it. And, and of course, it, it would be terrible if the cat got chewed up by the dog, you know. Some of you are laughing like, no, it wouldn't be terrible. It'd be great. But, you know, for our family, it would be terrible, just to be honest. And, uh, and so uh, this morning we're in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're, we're looking at David's rule. And David so far has been ruling well and taking care of God's people. And here we find in 2 Samuel 11, like uh, letting, uh, letting a dog tear into a cat and destroy and it's, it's, it's not a great passage to read from the standpoint of we see a lot of destruction and we see a lot of evil taking place. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's part of how God tells his story of his world and what's gone on in it. And it helps us to understand how God operates in his world. And so we, we are, it's good for us to read this. It's good for us to understand this. And the big idea that I want to get across this morning is that we need to avoid the destruction of evil by not despising God's word and not despising God's grace. We need to avoid the destruction of evil, of evil by not despising God's word and not despising God's grace. So let's look at the passage and just kind of, I want to notice as we read through the passage together this morning that, first of all, just evil's destruction, the destruction that evil causes as a result of what takes place in this chapter. So let's read, let's read the passage together, just follow along as I read. It says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, 
David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now some people comment at this point, like, look, David didn't go into battle like he should have, and that might be true, Um, but you also see earlier in the passage that David had remained in Jerusalem. So that's not really the point of, you can take some lessons from that, and we'll look at some other lessons that you, you might find here, but again, you'll we're looking for evil and evil's destruction here and, and how that works. And so just keep going in the story here. It says, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one of them said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him, asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David sent to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why do you not go to your own house? Uriah said to David, the ark and the Israel and Judah dwell in booze, and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. And so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, and so that he might so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the front forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And so as Joab was besieging the, the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, why did you go near to the city to fight? Do you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerushbesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why do you go out so near the wall? And then you shall say, your servant Uriah, the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, and we, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the servants, some of the king's servants are dead, and Uriah, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, then, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the, the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. 
When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent to Nathan, to David, and he came and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall not de- never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For this you did secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that was Uriah's wife, bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and, and lay all night on the ground, and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you rose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son and called his name. He called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So here we have, first of all, evil's destruction, and we see David trying both sinning and then trying to hide his sin. 
And again, we, we look for clues as to how to avoid sin ourselves in the passage, and there's, there's potentially some there. Again, the idea that, that you, you, you do what you're supposed to be doing. Don't get, don't get lazy. Don't get idle where you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. But there are times in life where idleness is, is not idleness in the sense of just pure idleness, but taking a break and enjoying a break is, is not bad. So, so the, the story doesn't like locate idle, uh, evil in, in a lack of uh, busyness, although that's a very American way of locating evil, <laughs> a lack of busyness. Nor does the, the, the story locate the evil in Bathsheba herself. You know, uh, Muslim, Islam is a religion, tends to locate evil in, in the beauty of the woman, and therefore the woman has to wear the burqa, and she has to dress, uh, you know, cover herself because evil resides in her and in the temptation that she provides. And the story is very clear here that that is not where the evil is at. Nor do we see that, you could say, well, David, David had people around him, and when he gets isolated, uh, like he is here, then, then he falls into sin. And yes, that's true too, if he had friends, if he wasn't isolated, and if he had, uh, if he had friends who would tell him no, like Joab evidently was willing to just kill a guy even though he knew it was wrong, it, it is good to have friends around you to hold you accountable, to, to hold you back when you start to stumble and fall, but evil is not located there either in the story. It's clear that evil is located in the story, in David's desire to get what he wanted, regardless of the consequences. David wanted to define what activities were good to him and control the consequences of what he did. And this is where evil resides. It resides in David's heart itself. There's the problem. And yes, you can keep busy, and yes, you can have, make sure you have good friends, and you can make sure that you avoid certain environments and, and pursuing certain, certain uh, environments that might be more tempting, but none of those are substitutes or cover the fact that David's heart was in the wrong place. It was his sin. He wanted what he wanted. He took it, and then he tried to cover it up And in the process, he destroyed himself, a man who was honorable, who loved him, who served him faithfully. He destroyed families. You're going to see, this, this story here is, is in an ark, okay? So if you go to Chronicles and you see the history of Israel, David and Bathsheba is not even mentioned. This, this whole ark is not even mentioned. But in this in, in 2 Samuel, there's this huge arc. It actually starts, you can see it because it st starts after the summary of David's reign at the end of chapter 8. So in chapter 9, which is, this, which is Mephibosheth, it starts there. David's loyalty to Mephibosheth, David's attempt to be loyal to the Am Ammonites. That doesn't work out. And then there's this arc that goes all the way through David and Bathsheba, and then Tamar and Amnon and Absalom, Absalom's revolt, and then ends up with civil war and ends finally when a, a wise woman gets Joab to listen. 
It's this huge ark that's not in, in put in anywhere else. And you say, well, why, is this, why is this ark of a story here? I get we need to know some of these things, but why is it here? Well, the Chronicles was written primarily after the exile, looking back saying, what can we learn about pursuing God and, and getting back close to God? But but first and second Samuel, first and second Kings are written by the prophets, trying to get the kings primarily to listen and say, hey, look, you can't just do whatever you please as king. And so there's this huge arc here. And frankly, if you, if you look at Proverbs, okay, and you, and you read Proverbs and you look at the lessons that are learned from this arc of a story that's, that starts in chapter 9 and goes all the way through chapter 20, You'll find a lot of the lessons of Proverbs come, that Solomon, in a sense, is writing down come out of this story. Because the one thing that's, that's written here, in a sense, that, that, that he, the prophets want the kings to know is that God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't care if you're king. If you mess up, you're still going to be judged. And not only will you be judged, you'll hurt the people that you're supposed to be ruling. They'll face the same judgment that you're facing. And that's what happens in the life of Israel. There's also comparisons to Genesis 3 here, where God is coming in to, to Adam and Eve and saying, where are you? Why, why, is, why are you behaving differently? And Nathan here steps into the same thing and says, you know, you're the man. <laughs> so the evil here is, is that David wanted to define what activities were good for him and control the consequences of what he did, but God is no respecter of persons, and he will judge evil. He will. And some of you might be asking the question, well, how could David do this if he's a man after God's own heart? If, if God can say, hey, this is a man after God's own heart, then David does this. What does that mean? Again, the phrase, a man after God's own heart, is not saying that he, David's going to be perfect. It's saying that God is choosing to show his grace to David. He's choosing to pour out his love to David in a, in a way that he didn't necessarily do to Saul. He's choosing to use David. And David here chooses his own path. He chooses a rebellious path. And, and, and to, to, to be honest, if, if we're honest, we would recognize that we also like to define what's good for us. <laughs> we, do, we, we like to define what's good for us for our lives, for, for our pattern of life, our lifestyle, the, the things we choose that, are, that we think, this is good for me, even if it's not good for you, it's good for me, right? That's what we say. And then what we say is, and if it's good for me, I also want, I, I also want to choose the consequences of what I've done. I, I want to choose how this plays out. And if, if nothing else, you should learn that in God's world, God doesn't let us, he lets us make some choices, but he doesn't let us choose our consequences. He doesn't let us choose how this plays out. Why? Because it's his world and his ways, and he wants us to know him. And if he ignores what we do, then we don't get to know him. 
So that's where evil resides. How can we avoid it? And it comes through noticing two aspects of what Nathan says to David. This is, again, there's so many lessons here, I can't hit them all. But if you're looking for a classic way of getting through to someone, look at how Nathan approaches David and talks about lambs. David was a shepherd. He talks about rich and poor and, and really drives home the point. It's a great classic way of teaching, a way of, of approaching a conflict and confronting someone about sin. But, but I want to focus in on lessons learned about how to avoid the, the consequences of evil, the destruction of evil. Notice what David says, Nathan says to David in 2 Samuel 12, verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what was evil in his sight? So here's the first thing to do to uh, avoid evil's destruction is don't despise God's word. Don't despise God's word. God here has, he's been clear. He's been clear with Israel. He's like, you know, here, here's 10 commandments. <laughs> There's two of them. Don't commit adultery. Don't commit murder. And David just says, oh, forget about those two. <laughs> I'll keep a couple of the others, but I'm going I'm I'm to violate those two. As it says in James, chapter 2, if you break one, you break them all in a sense. God is not happy with David. David deserves his judgment. But, it asks, but here's kind of the, the, the whole point is God's word is there to guide us. God's word is there when, to, for us to recognize that we don't know it all. We don't know what's best for us. This is God's world. He made it, and, and he knows how it should operate. The question for us is, if we're not going to despise God's word, the question is, is do we delight in having someone guide us? Do we light, delight in having someone rule over us? David put it well in Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He's saying, I delight in having God's word to guide me to say, no, don't do this. And yes, go do this. I, I want that for myself, for my life, for who I am, to have someone guiding me. You see it? Even in Psalm 51, where he is repenting of, of the sin that he committed, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. How much do you delight in, in listening to God's word, in pursuing God's word? I know life gets busy. I know life can be hard and, and there can be many multiple responsibilities that you're juggling and things that are going on. But do you delight in being in God's word? Do you delight in, in seeking to, to put it into practice? It reminds me of the parable Jesus told, right? The parable of the sower. The sower goes out to sow seed, and he's sowing seed, and some falls on the path, and some falls in the weeds, and some falls uh, 
on rocky ground and some falls in good soil. And Jesus tells the meaning of the parable is this, is that sometimes Satan comes in and steals the word, doesn't let it really get into people's hearts. But sometimes it's not Satan's fault, sometimes it's our fault. The rocky ground is that, 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 that ground that has, it, it, it springs up, it's like, oh, this is great, this is awesome. It responds in, instantly well, like, oh, this is great, I want to follow God, I want to do this. But when, when push comes to shove, that internal stubbornness of the heart kicks in. It's like, no, I still want to do what I want to do, regardless of what God wants me to do. And the seed of the word doesn't bear fruit. It withers and dies. And sometimes when it falls amongst thorny ground, it's, it's, it, Jesus says sometimes we, we, we listen to the word, we hear it, we, we're like, oh, I, I love the word, but then it says the cares and burdens, the desires of the world pop up. We look around and we're like, we're like wow, that's cool, that's cool. Yeah, you know, it's like, it's like a dog, right? Squirrel, you know, kind of idea. And instead of really pursuing God's word and seeking to delight in God's word and let, letting the word of God guide, really guide our steps on a day-to-day basis, instead, we get caught, up in, get caught up in so many distractions and so many ideas and so many things like, I'm going to do this, 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 and this, and this. And we're not really asking what God, what does God want us to do? But he says, the heart that's like good soil receives the word and obeys it gladly. They don't, it doesn't despise the word. It's like it realizes, look, I delight in having someone tell me how to live my life. I, I, I want that for my life. And that's really the opposite of the world today, right? We all want to just live our lives the way we think is best for ourselves. And frankly, we're going to end up in the same place David ends up here facing God's judgment and the destruction of people around us because we have despised the word of God. But not only does David despise God's word, he also despises God's grace. And this is an amazing statement that sometimes we overlook. Verse 8 puts it clearly. It says, I gave, this is God speaking to David, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Basically, God's saying, if you wanted something, why didn't you ask? Look at, look at all the things I've given you. Look at, look at the, the blessings I've given you and the, the respect responsibility I've given you and the, the authority I've given you and look at all the, the many things I've given you and if I've given you all of this and why and if you were like well I need something else then why didn't you just come ask this is an amazing statement like David if, if you wanted another wife you could have just asked but no you had to go take and David goes from being uh, the, positioning himself as the receiver of every good and perfect gift from God to being a taker. I'm going to take this. I'm going to take that. I'm going to steal this for myself. And 
And he despises not only God's word, he despises God's grace. And you realize why both are important, right? If, if we don't have both God's, God's, if we only have God's rule, then we view God as this guy who's, who's always got rules for us, but who doesn't care about anything that we do. You know, it's like, if you, if you break the rules, bam, I'm all over you. But we need God's grace as well. That, that benevolent rule that God is saying, I'm here to provide for you. I'm here to, to, to give you good and every good and perfect gift. Don't you recognize that? Don't you view this world as mine and I've given you so many good things. I can give you more. I've got more. And if we, we need both because if we only view God as this gracious God, then He's a God who wants to give us good things, but he doesn't know what's best for us. It's, it's more like going to the store, right? And like, okay, which, which cereal do you need? You know, here's a thousand of them. And that feels like the grocery thing at Walmart, right? You've got a thousand choices. God's got this guy like, oh, hey, here's a thousand choices. I don't know what's the best for you, but, uh, but uh, yeah, you can try whatever you feel like. But God's not like this. He knows what's best for us. He made us. And not only does he know what's best for us, he he wants to give us good gifts. And those two ideas are held together. They're held together. He's a good God who knows what's best. But he's also a God who just doesn't care about your performance. He cares about you. And he thinks about you. So, I have this cat, because it tends to turn in my cat, especially at, you know, five in the morning, those kind of times, you know, so this morning I woke up before we couldn't find the cat, and I heard the cat, it was meowing, I was like, I I hunted it down, it was sitting basically on my daughter's head. You know, she's sleeping, and he's, you know, the cat's getting ready to attack my daughter. I'm like, ah, let's let my daughter sleep. It's five in the morning. I get up. I take the cat downstairs. I lay on the couch. The cat's trying to eat my hand, right? And it's awake. And uh, the moon is out, just sitting up there in the sky. I don't know if if you were up at five in the morning, you saw it, right? It's nice, nice and bright out there. Most of you hopefully weren't awake at five in the morning. It's, it was bright out there, and I was sitting back, and I was thinking about God's rule while the cat chewed on my hand. And, and I realized in so many, okay, so if, if go back to the creation story for a second. In Genesis chapter 1, God clearly says that the, the sun, moon, and stars are, are uh, a representative of the fact that they rule the day and the night. So they're, they're representations of how God rules the day and the night. And to me, it's amazing because I love to, I love kind of physics stuff. I love astrophysics. I love, so, I, so on my newsfeed, I get different things. And they talk about the fact that, that in the universe, the universe is actually expanding. They, they kind of figure this out at, at, at a speed faster than the speed of light. So they, this is their hypothesis anyway, at least it seems based on the evidence that the universe is still expanding and it's expanding faster than the speed of light. 
And we're like, how does that work? Because we've never, we've never figured out how anything can break the speed of light. That's like a law of the universe. And yet, at the edge of the universe, it's being broken all the time. It's being broken right now, right? And yet, at the same time, this is a huge, vast universe. We don't understand how big it is. And you realize, okay, God rules in such a way that he can work faster than time. And yet, he controls all of time. However long this universe has been in existence... He's controlled all of it. He, he, he rules time. And so when we see in so many different places where God shows up at perfectly the right time in the right way, you realize this is how God rules his world. He, he rules his world with perfection in his timing. He, he understands how to work faster than the speed of light if he needs to, to get what he needs to get done, done. And he also creates these pockets of of. of in the universe where time literally stops. They're called black holes. Everything stops, even time. God just plays with time when we always struggle with it. And then he creates these balls of vast energy that are continually exploding, but always staying together. They're called stars. And he puts them in the night sky just to show light around. And he has these vast distances between us. You have these vast turbulent places of energy, and then you have these vast distances where everything is calm. God knows how to rule his world. God knows how to control his world. God knows how to take a rock like the moon that's in the, that has no value at all, right? We've been to the moon. We're like, oh, there's no value there. Let's not go back. We don't need to go back. There's no point, right? And he's like, no, I've got value for that. I'm going to have light shine off of it so people have light at night. He is a benevolent, good ruler. And unfortunately, in our evil hearts, we despise his rule by despising his word and despising his grace. And we live in a world that does this, do we not? We live in a world that despises God's word and despises God's grace. They get angry. They look around at the evil, dis destruction of evil around them, and they get angry. And they say, look at all the bad things that are happening. Why can't God stop all these bad things? Why does God let all this evil happen? If he's such a good God, why? And I get it, it's a good question. But just, just step back for a minute in the story, and let's just kind of rewind the story for a second and put David back there, seeing Bathsheba for the first time. What if he had said, oh, she's beautiful. God's given me a beautiful wife. I'm going to go spend some time with her we wouldn't even have this story, right? Because David would have not despised God's word and not despised God's grace in his life. God's given me, frankly, he's given David many beautiful women. I, I don't know how many, but at the point is he could have spent time with any of them. But instead, he despised God's grace and he despised God's word. And so the problem is not God. The problem is us. And to blame it on God is like to, to, to go to the moon and somehow, some way, we can't do it right now, obviously, but some way explode the moon 
we decide we don't want the moon anymore, we're going to get rid of it, and we explode it. And then, all of the destruction that happens because there's no, there's no tides, there's no, there's no light at night, there's no gravitational forces, all of that is gone, and the destruction that results from that. And then we turn, turn around and blame God. God, why aren't the tides happening? Why, aren't, why aren't, isn't there light at night? Why, why? God's like, I gave you the moon, <laughs> and you decided to destroy it. Is that my fault? But that's the world we live in. We live in a world that violates God's word and then accuses God of not being good when God is a good and gracious God. And the problem is, and it's not just David. It's in us too. We despise God's word. Can I just talk about sex for just a minute? Sex is a great gift from God that God has designed for a man and a woman together in marriage to enjoy because it's a very powerful gift. It's like Paul compares it to a fire. It's a great gift, but it's designed to be held in control because if it gets out of control, it destroys things just like fire does. And God wants to give us this gift because he loves us. He wants us to understand how great a gift it is to know him. And so he gives us a small gift in this gift in marriage that we call sex. And if you're struggling in this area, Paul has some great advice. If you're burning, get married. You say, well, I can't just go find something. No, do the work, you know. Enjoy, do the work of, of, of going to God and saying, God, can I, I need a wife. I need a husband. You know what? Don't despise God's grace. You're like, but, but I can't get it on my own. That's the point. You can't get it on your own. You get it when you go to God and ask him for good things. Don't despise his grace. But also don't despise his word. Don't try to find it some other way. It'll just bring destruction. The problem is we, we violate it in various ways. We're all broken in this area, in these areas. We, we despise God's word. We despise God's grace. And therefore... One of the biggest points to the story is we need a king who won't despise God's word or God's grace. We need a king who won't despise God's word or God's grace. David is not the ultimate answer to our problem. It's David's son who is. And it's tragic that David's son dies, but it's a picture of the fact that David needs David's son to die in his place just like we need David's son to die in our place. And that son said, 
Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither wrath, moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's our king. He doesn't despise God's word. Satan tempts him three times, and he's like, nope, my, my food is to do what God tells me to do. He doesn't despise God's grace. He's like, God is going to take care of us. Let's seek him. Let's go after him. And therefore, we need him to rescue us. See, that's the, the, the whole point of putting a king through this whole story in First and Second Samuel is we can't rescue ourselves on our own. We need a king to fight our battles for us, to rescue us when we get into trouble. And Jesus, David's son, is that king. He comes and he lives a perfect life and then he gives his life for us to rescue us from the destruction that we have caused to ourselves. It reminds me of Aragorn and the return of the king, right? Tolkien definitely modeled Aragorn after a Christ figure. And in, in the return of the king, Aragorn comes in and defeats the army in front of, uh, in front of the citadel. And, and then he, he has, and he goes and heals, right? Because he's a healing king. He's not just a conquering king, he's a healing king. And that's the king we have in all our brokenness and all our attempts to go our own way and the evil that comes out because of that. Christ comes with healing in his wings. And he heals us of our brokenness. He heals us of our evil. He, 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 because he didn't despise God's word and he didn't despise God's grace, he pours out God's grace on us. And that's why 1 Peter 1 puts it this way. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We have a redeemer. And it's not about how much money we have. It's not even about what our, our parents did before us. We have a Redeemer who calls us out of darkness into light, who, who gives us the gracious love of God forever. He is our King. He perfectly did what His Father told Him to do. And He ransomed us from sin and death. So the question really comes down to not are you going to avoid being like David here? The question really comes down to which king is your king? Are you going to follow in David's footsteps in this instance? Or are you going to follow in Jesus' footsteps? Are you going to let Jesus deliver you from sin? Or are you going to be like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm going to do, I'm going to let David deliver me and he's not going to be able to do that. In fact, he's going to destroy you in the process. 
Jesus obeyed God's word and delighted in God's grace. His rule is perfect. I don't know what issues you're facing even this week. Maybe some issues of timing. Maybe some issues of provision. Maybe some issues of strength and help. There's so much going on. God is a good God. He wants to help you. Have you asked him for help? That's the point, really. Is God's like, if you really needed something, why didn't you ask? Why didn't you ask? And I would beg you, <laughs> this week, ask. That's the point of having a king. He does things you can't do. So ask him for things. Plead with him for things. Go to him and look at your neighbors like, well, I can't reach my neighbor. I can't talk to him. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to, what to do. Ask. I, I don't know what to do with my family situation where you have these conflicts, these situations. These, uh, ask. I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know how my college is going to go. I don't know what to Ask. Ask God because he is a gracious, benevolent ruler who loves you and then listen to his word. Don't despise his word and follow it. Will you do that? Because we have a gracious king who has won the victory for us and we should not despise that, right? The anecdotal story goes, right, about Alexander the Great. He conquered, he conquered Asia and uh, he conquered Persia and he's... He's, he's sitting there, and, and uh, he has uh, someone come up to him, and he's like, Alexander, you're just, you just got lucky in a sense. I, I don't, I, he's like, no. He's, he's like, ask for anything. I'll give it to you. And he's like, ask for anything? Okay, I'm going to ask for $10 million. And, and his, the, the, his advisor's like, Alexander, that's crazy. You, he just asked for $10 million. You can't honor that request. And Alexander's like, his, his request shows how great I am. Of course I'm going to honor it because it shows, me, shows how great I am by honoring it. And that's the point. If we don't go to God, we don't honor him as God, and we, we can't be thankful. Jed read it, right? You have Psalm 51, but you also have Psalm 50. God doesn't need you. He wants to give you gracious things, and he wants you to honor him by being thankful. So don't despise God's grace. David didn't in Psalm 51, because he's like, hey, forgive me, and then I'll be able to teach others how great you are. I mean, that's a bold, that's a bold, bold request. I've just committed adultery, God. I've just committed murder, but forgive me, and I'll tell people how great you are. <laughs> but God does that, and yes, there's consequences, and we're going to read for the next several chapters about the consequences to sin, but God does forgive. And if you're here struggling with whether God forgives you, if God can forgive your sin, you have the perfect answer in Jesus Christ. God sent his son to die for you so that your sins could be forgiven and that you could be rescued. So, one, have you done that? Have you turned to King Jesus and said, Jesus, I need you. I can't solve this on my own. I've rebelled against you. I've ignored you. I've done what I wanted to do, and, it's, and I know it's caused problems in my life, and I need you. Have you done that? And if you have, 
Are you asking your benevolent God who loves you to help you with the problems of your life? Are you doing that? Because if you're not, you're despising the grace of God in your life. What a terrible position to be in. Don't stay there. Start asking. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a good God. We, it's, hard, it's hard to even comprehend how good you are. And I know we look at the world around us, we see the destruction that's there. And if we're honest, we have to admit it's because we, we all choose our own path. We all choose to get what we want. And it causes destruction. Lord, I pray for myself, for those who are here, for those who are online. Help us to realize your grace and help us to ask for it. Not because we deserve it, because we don't, but because our King has won the victory and given us your grace. We thank you in your Son's name.